G'day Hope Men, and anybody else who's tuning in, this is number four in our video series on breaking habits and sinful cycles of pornographic addiction. If you're watching these videos, I'm going to guess that you have unbroken, unrepentant cycles of pornographic sin in your life, where you continually go back and keep on watching sexually explicit videos. Maybe looking them up on websites, maybe just finding sexually illicit pictures on social media. But if this is your case, then you do not have a right and correct understanding of the fear of the Lord. And that is today's theme. In this video, we're going to understand uh, and unpack a little bit more of what the Bible means when it tells us to fear the Lord and why it is so necessary in our fight against sin. You know, it's commonly said and thought, maybe you've even entertained these kind of mindsets before, that what you really need is just to, to love the Lord and that'll be enough. So that what preachers should do, what Bible study leaders should do, what men's ministry leaders should do, is they should simply tell you how much God loves you and just keep on reminding you that you need to love God. And with all of that positive affirmation, that will be enough. You will be pushed forwards in a godly and Christ-like loving way. And if anybody brings hellfire, sulfur, brimstone, judgment kind of language to the table, the modern psychologists and modern day therapy uh, curriculum writers would tell us that they're not going to be helpful. They're going to undo people's uh, uh, thinking processes that are going to be helpful. Well, I'm here either not caring what they said, hopefully disproving what they said with the Word of God. In Scripture, which is a very realistic book, we have the covenantal canon, or in other words, the covenantal documents from God to his people, all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And in this book, which again is so honest and realistic, God gives both loving affirmation, blessings of, and promises of help and support and rewards for doing good. And he also knows that in our fallen state, that not being enough, he buffets those things with promises of discipline, and if the discipline does not bring repentance, then destruction. If it's how God trains us towards discipline and holiness is to include threats of judgment, I don't think we can find a better way. Let's just go back to the Bible and by the Spirit put us into death. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 9. <clears throat> In Proverbs we find this all-important verse commonly said, commonly heard, not very commonly understood. In chapter 9, verse 10, Solomon writes this, The fear of Yahweh, or of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. There's an understanding for uh, a Christian, is that if you're going to become wise, and of course, putting your pornographic sin to death is a part of wisdom, if you're going to have insight, if you're going to mature, if you're going to grow, you do not grow in wisdom up to the point that you understand the fearing of the Lord. You don't grow in wisdom until you fear the Lord. That's not the end point. It is the beginning point, which means 
If you want to know anything about the Christian life, if you want to understand anything about God, if you want to understand anything about the scriptures, you need to start with fearing God as Lord, as sovereign, and as judge. When it says here that we need to fear the Lord, it's not simply saying that you should think of God in a way that is uh, uh, reverent. It's not enough to simply think that fear, from a human point of view, considering God, should simply be that we respect him, or that we have a sense of awe about him. That is not what we mean. It's not what we see in the scripture. When Isaiah, or even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, John, when they come face to face with the Lord, they throw themselves down, or they, they just pass out as dead. They're so fearful. They're so afraid of what is happening to them, because God by nature, whether you accept it yet or not, is a fearful God. When he draws back the curtain and just shows a bit of what he is really like, people are afraid. And gentlemen, this is why I think it's so important to, to talk about this in the discussion around pornography. The reason that we are willing to do such horrible acts with so much unrepentance in so much cyclic, uh, uh, cyclical, continual, unchanging patterns, the reason that we're so willing to bring such filth into our family, into our marriage, into our ministries, into our church, the reason we're willing to do that is because the modern day, uh, broad evangelical picture of God without any fangs and as a God who just likes us too dang much to lay a hand on us is unbiblical and imbalanced. God is the God who has graciously saved us in Jesus Christ and that doesn't change him from being a terrifying God to those who do not repent. Start there. Start in all of your understanding about God that he is fearful, that he is above you, that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is absolute, that he is holy. It's called in this, he's called in this text the Holy One. That he despises sin, that he hates evil, that he punishes sinners and evildoers. That's our God. The fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. To get this wrong goes uh, leads to folly on every other point of theology and the Christian life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's not enough to simply say that it means be afraid of God. That's a That should be a given, but that's just the starting point. Of course, we should remember Fearing the Lord means, number one, remembering that God, if he was to reveal himself to you in judgment, if he was to really show us his fullness, we would be utterly afraid. That's number one. But number two, it's also to recognize that he is Lord and he is sovereign. That there's nothing outside of his reach and nothing outside of his sovereignty, his authority. This means that when we understand that God is a fearful, terrifying, in, in the language of the old confessions, a truly terrible and just God. When we recognize that, if you think the response to that should be to run, if you think that, that if we have a big understanding of God's judgment and, and fearfulness, we shouldn't have that because that'll make people run away. That'll make people draw back. What I want to say is that that is not true. 
If you want to run away from God because he is scary, that shows that you don't have a big enough view of his fearfulness. It does not mean you have too strong a view. Because think about it. If somebody wants to run away from God, that suggests that there is somewhere you can run away to. That suggests that there is something which is able to keep you safe from God. It suggests that there is somewhere, something, someone that you can go to which can equal out God's power, which can defend you against God, which can keep God from getting to you. And if you think that way, then you do not think along biblical lines of God's fearfulness. What fearing the Lord means, therefore, is understanding that he is utterly terrible to those who do not repent, that he is utterly scary and fearful, and yet that there is nowhere else we can run for refuge. He himself is both the danger, the terror, and the refuge. We go to him for salvation, for safety, for refuge, for redemption, and forgiveness. To turn our back on him and run is to not understand the fear of the Lord. So we must have a fear of the Lord that understands that only he is God. Only he, therefore, can save. Only he can rescue and redeem. We do not draw back, but we draw near by faith, knowing that he clothes those who come near with his grace. He clothes those who come near to him with the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, to recognize God's lordship, to recognize that he is Yahweh, to recognize he is the Holy One, and to be afraid of, of opposing him, and yet to find refuge in him, is fearing the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. But I want to go on it a little bit deeper, because even that might just be a bit too disconnected. As if God is a God on the outside of the universe, God is a God who will meet me when I die, God is a God who has written the Bible but still stays pretty separate. And to think that way is to push judgment and God's discipline to the end of the world or outside of our real lived experience. But because God is in and through all things, not all things are God. God is not all things. We're not pantheists or panentheists. But we do believe in the imminence of God, that he is right here. As Paul will say, in him we live and move and have our being. He is everywhere present, omnipresent. He is especially present with those who have his spirit. The omnipresence of God, and especially the covenantal presence by his spirit, means that he is able to enact judgment wherever and whenever and however, on whoever he wants. We're actually going to read this in uh, the book of First Peter, where Peter is in the middle of a beautiful uh, section, imploring and exhorting the Christians to walk in holiness, to give up their old patterns of sin that they got from their Gentile forefathers, to give up their unrighteousness and their, their, their lustful passions of the flesh. These are all very good um, descriptors of pornographic addictions and lusts. All of these things he's commanding them to give up, and he gives one reason here in verse 17, among others. He says, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
Peter is saying, if you call God Father, and you think that because he's Father, he won't discipline because you're a kid, you're a son. So calling him Father means you escape judgment. Calling him Father means you get lots of grace. Calling him Father means he won't lay hand on me because I'm his, I'm his child. He says, if you call him Father, remember who he is that you're calling Father. Remember that the one you're calling Father is the one who is the infinite, holy, righteous judge. And he brings out in the end of time, but also in this life, judgments to those to show his own righteousness. He gives judgment to sinners and the unrepentant and impenitent. And he gives blessings to the righteous and the holy so that his righteousness might be revealed. So again, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartial according to each one's deeds. In other words, God's impartial. He's not going to wink at your sin because you're his child, but allow, uh, but, but judge the sin of the unrighteous. It's not how God works. If there is sin that needs to be cut out, he will go to work to doing it. In fact, Hebrews 12 will show us that we should actually expect greater judgment because we're God's children. Think of it this way. If there was a judge in a city, a well-known judge, and he was known for his righteousness and his justice and putting away the evil without mercy and justifying and saving and vindicating the victims without corruption... If you were his child and you were allowed to come into the courtroom day to day and you were allowed to stand next to him when he gave press releases and you were next to him in his photograph and portraits up on the walls of his courtroom, do you think that you would be allowed to be lax, law-breaking and, uh, and altogether unkempt in your behavior? Or do you think that by the merit of the fact that your father is the law keeper, that you will be even more disciplined than those he is punishing. And that's the reality that Peter's getting at. Don't think that we get grace and promises that God will never bring us painful discipline in life because we're his kids. Now, he promises that there will be discipline in the middle of your lives, in the actual lived experiences, because he cares for his holiness and for our sanctification. So this means that God really might just blow apart your finances because he can't get your attention through the word of God. God may allow your private pornographic sin to become public knowledge to your shame because you would not repent while it was in private. God may make something public and well-known so that you're kicked out of your ministry, kicked out of your uh, uh, relationship, kicked out of your job in difficult and painful ways so that you might turn to him and repent. God might uh, bring just situational difficulties, uh, vehicle problems, relational struggles, uh, uh, employment problems. He could do anything he wishes because nothing is outside of his realm of control. It could be health, it could be uh, situational, it could be uh, disciplinary, whatever it is. God can do whatever he wishes to wake you up and discipline you. You need to remember it's not punishment. You're not being condemned for sin as if you're paying for your sin. 
But because God loves you, because he purchased you, he's going to polish you up and make you look holy. And that is often a painful experience. So that the following verse in 1 Peter says, the reason you need to conduct yourself with fear, knowing that God is with you in whatever room you go into, God is with you in whatever website you're looking up, God is with you in whatever you're searching, God is with you in whatever you're looking at on screen, God is with you whatever you're doing in private, knowing that you should maintain a spirit of fear that the Lord could at any point bring about that to discipline. He says further in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Friends, the motivation to escape the discipline of God and to walk in the holy blessing of God is because you've been purchased from those ways you're still walking in. The blood of Jesus has already been shed to bring you back from pornographic activity and addictions. The blood of Jesus has been shed to purchase you away from sin so that you can belong to God. You don't need to keep on walking back to them. God loves you so much, he will bring pain and difficulty and even public dismay and shame if you keep walking back to them because he loves you and has given Christ Jesus to you. Be afraid of his constant discipline. In fact, let me say this, that um, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we have further examples. And probably this might be the most shocking. You're probably not too shocked to have heard that God can bring some punishment and discipline in your life, and you need to be afraid of that. Maybe that's new for a lot of you. Maybe that's uh, that that's that's old teaching for you, and it's good to have a reminder. And you need to start applying that so that you are walking away from pornographic sins. But this next part is probably that which gets most faithful Bible preachers into trouble. When you start saying, with the Word of God, with the apostles, with God himself, that you might die because of your sexual sin, that God might kill you because of your unrepentance, that God might snuff out your life, somebody find you dead, or you die in a car accident, or God make you sick and kill you because of your unrepentant sin, that's when people start getting a bit uncomfortable. And it is not at all unbiblical to say that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is imploring the Corinthians to walk away from idolatry. And he goes back to Old Testament examples to say that they, in principle, apply to the New Testament Christians. Old Testament examples apply to New Testament Christians by way of examples. And what he is saying is, what he's going to say is that there is situations in the Old Testament whose judgments should cause fear in our life because God is still working that same way today. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality. That is exactly what pornography is. We must not indulge in sexual immorality 
as some of them did, some of the Old Testament Jews did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. He's referring to a story in Numbers 25 when the people engaged in sexual immorality with the pretty young gals of another nation and included in that the worshipping of another god. And God killed somewhere between 23 and 24,000 people that day. Killed them on the spot. And, and, and what Paul is saying is, flee sexual immorality because God is in the habit of killing sexually immoral people. And there's no room for us to be able to say that this is the new covenant, but I thought God matured a little bit and got a little bit more patient. I thought God didn't do that anymore. No, God still kills people who profess to be his children or even who truly are his children if they are unrepentant in their sin. And we see proof of this, that it was happening not just by example in the Old Testament, but it was happening in the New Testament times. It happens in the very next chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. And this is something that you need to hear if you are a frequent watcher of pornography. Is that the fear of the Lord should inform whether or not you take communion. If you are struggling and you are feeling weak, but you are doing all that you can between you and the Lord, you can be honest, by the Spirit, you are seeking to put to death the deeds of your flesh. Then the communion table is for you, and it is a means by which God will strengthen you in your fight against sin. But if you are somebody who makes excuses for pornography, claims to be weaker than it, claims to be excusable, claims that it's just a habit that you can't break, claims that it's an addiction and therefore uh, psychological and therefore outside of your control. If you continually go back to it, even though there are opportunities to get out and you continually return, then you should not be taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a table for repentant people to come and remember the bloodshed for them and to take strength in fighting from fighting against more of their sin. But Paul says that because the Corinthians were not understanding this, because they were actually allowing the unrepentant to come to the table and people were not leaving their sin behind to come and take the body of Jesus. They were not leaving their iniquity behind to come take the blood of Jesus. They were simply taking and eating and remembering that God's gracious and he won't do anything about it. They would come and they would eat and God had killed some of them. It says this in verse um, 28 of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Paul is telling them, because people aren't leaving their sin behind, they're still living unrepentantly, but then taking the Lord's Supper, which says, I'm a repentant person, God has saved me, this is what a Christian looks like. God is making them sick and weak and ill so that they are driven to their knees in prayer, turn away from their sin and rely on God for grace and reformation. But it's not that, that's not how bad, that's not just how bad it gets. He says in the next, ver, next words, and some of you have died. There were some recent funerals in the city of Corinth, which nobody understood why, uh, the, but, but God is telling them through the Apostle Paul 
some of those people died because of unrepentant sin. What I want to say to you gentlemen is that what does not come out publicly to bring you to repentance and what is not dealt with through the process of church discipline where your sin uh, in the end stages becomes known to many and you are um, declared to be an unbeliever, if those steps of discipline don't happen in your life from the Lord God, or if it, uh, uh, if through disciplines that come about, you don't come to repentance and confess to somebody and walk in holiness thereafter, if you are unrepentant and keep on hoping that the Father that you profess to know just won't do anything about your sin, he may just end your life. And I am at no liberty as a Bible preacher and teacher to say that we're free and exempt from that promise of judgment. You need to have a functional fear of the Lord, not just a theological one, not just a emotional one. You need to have a functional fear of the Lord where you remember at all times, the Lord God is with you. He judges those who are unrepentant. I am not exempt. I need to bring myself to him in confession, in repentance, and by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body.